Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for what is in our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength tonight as your children. Because of that, thank you for the quality of life we get to live. Thank you for hope. Thank you for meaning. Thank you for the cleansing of guilt. Thank you for the blessing of a fresh start. All these things that are found in your work for us. We give you praise tonight. Lord, we ask as we turn to your word tonight that we would grow in our understanding of you. We would grow in our the revelation that you have given us through your word and that it would produce an even greater appreciation and a greater worship directed toward you. We ask that your Holy Spirit will continue to be active in our hearts tonight through the teaching of your word. We want to hear your voice tonight, Lord, personally, and our, the uniqueness of our individual life tonight, Lord. And so give us ears to hear what your Spirit would speak to us and to the church. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 45 this evening on our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And please just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then you can follow along as we cover a little bit of territory on the Sunday evenings. And you'll be fairly lost trying to keep up with uh, just on the listening side without also being able to do that reading side related to the Word of God. In Psalm 45, we have a wedding psalm of a mighty king. And so it's a psalm about a king's wedding day and, uh, of course, would have been every, every wedding day is a big deal. Wow! Um, ask any of the parents, ask the bride and the groom and everybody that attends. Pretty special when you're going to attend a wedding. But in the ancient world, of course, even today, when you had somebody of prominence, uh, a king getting married, and here is a guy that is watching just the beauty of it, the majesty. I mean, here you've got a wedding with no budget. Just do whatever you want. I mean, bring in the white stallions and whatever you want to do, you can do in it. And it's probably written in celebration of uh, King Solomon's uh, wedding, his first wedding. Unfortunately, you wish it could stop there, but he went on to marry quite a bit beyond that. And uh, But the doesn't diminish the psalm in any way as it was written related to his uh, marrying of his first wife. And this Psalm 45 is um, it's like you have prophecies in the Bible that have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment uh, where maybe Isaiah prophesies about something that is happening in Israel at the moment and God's Word applies to that. But there's the double fulfillment that it is a picture of Christ or a picture of a far fulfillment, something God is going to do at the end of the age. So you have the near and the far fulfillment. And in this psalm, it is very much a portrait of uh, King Solomon's uh, wedding, 
but it, clearly it's messianic. And that's why when you read through the psalm and you see the references to the king, all of the personal pronouns and titles are all capitalized because there's the recognition that it's so messianic of a psalm that it re- does refer to the coming of Messiah. We know that to be Christ, to be Jesus. And so uh, even as we'll see in just a couple of minutes, the writer of the book of Hebrews takes a passage out of uh, Psalm 45 to ascribe deity uh, to Jesus and very much applying the psalm uh, to Jesus himself. And so it's a picture of the uh, coming rapture of the church. At the rapture of the church, what occurs uh, in that great event is the bridegroom is united with his bride. And then immediately we are involved in what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Jewish wedding, the kind of the marriage supper. The wedding was a seven-day celebration. Uh, uh, the wedding would occur. The husband and wife would go uh, off aside, so to speak. There would be this great celebration. Imagine a wedding that goes on seven days. Whoo, that's, that's good eating. And uh, so that would go on. And then at the end of the seven days, the bride and the groom would reemerge and present themselves to the invited guests. And so it's a picture of the rapture of the church. We are united with Christ. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, the seven years of the tribulation period. And then we come forth with Christ at his second coming to be presented to the world uh, as, uh, as bride and groom, uh, so to speak. And so he says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And so he just is watching this wedding and he, what he's seeing is so, uh, obviously these psalmists are artistic types and uh, that God is using. And so he looks at this and he can hardly contain and can't wait to put into words what he's seeing with his eyes as a record for all of us. And so he begins with a description uh, of the king and the cause for praise of the king. He said, you are fair than the sons of men, speaking about the outward, uh, we would say beauty related to a woman. Uh, you never call a man beautiful. Well, don't ever call a man beautiful. Men are handsome. Women are beautiful. And uh, so it's speaking about the fact that the king is handsome. No doubt Solomon looked fabulous and uh, had a pretty good gene pool for good looks. And uh, so probably a very, very handsome man. Sometimes people, we don't really know what Jesus looks like except for like the picture you have of him in the kitchen. That's probably realistic right there. Um, was Gail Irwin said, what do you mean we don't know what Jesus looks like? I've got a picture of him right there, and he's the most good-looking, red-headed Irishman you've ever seen, you know. So all of it, we really don't. I mean, the people take their best shot at it. But sometimes people will, I think, sometimes go a little bit too far where they will diminish uh, sometimes Jesus, and they'll say, well, if he was uh, really super handsome, they would say you wouldn't have had to point him out. You'd just say, go and find that most handsome guy in the city, and that's the Messiah, or that's Jesus. 
well, I get what's being said there. And sometimes the reference, it's refer, people refer to Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah, that he is, he is uh, not comely, he isn't attractive to us, and there's nothing of his physical outward appearance that makes him appealing to us. But what Isaiah is doing there in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 is he is describing Jesus and the Messiah in his condition on the morning of his crucifixion and while on the cross, following those great beatings and the scourgings. And so when you saw him on the cross physically, there was nothing that would appeal. But it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that he isn't uh, attractive. Well, we don't know exactly what he looks like, but one day we're going to see him. I mean, John uses when he writes in Revelation, in the Revelation, and he hears uh, Jesus speaking, and he looks up to see him, and he sees, um, you know, as he tries to describe, you know, the voice and the hair and the, the, the different things, his eyes and all. But it's a pretty incomplete uh, uh, picture of that, a lot of imagery that's used there. Um, it'll be fun to see his face one day. But you are fairer than the sons of men. And then the beauty uh, of uh, the handsomeness, rather, uh, of the king is not supremely what he is outwardly because the psalmist goes on and says, Grace is poured upon your lips, and therefore God has blessed you forever. And so the most beautiful thing about the coming Messiah, we certainly know that it's true of Jesus. It's not his outward beauty, uh, but the fact that he possessed a beautiful heart. How do we know that he had a beautiful heart? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the beautiful grace that came out of his mouth in his teaching, revealing a very, very uh, grace-filled, beautiful heart, and, and so a reflection of his heart. So the beauty of the Messiah, not just skin deep or the handsomeness of it, of him, but uh, he is going to possess, the psalmist said, a grace that only God could possess. You remember when the Jewish religious leaders sent their kind of religious police to um, uh, arrest Jesus. And that was what they went to with the intention of doing that to him. And they came back empty-handed. And the religious leaders said, well, where is he? Why didn't you bring him? They said, no man spoke like that man. I mean, they, they caught him teaching or speaking. And they said, who's going to arrest him? How do you arrest somebody who can speak that kind of beauty, that kind of truth, has that kind of uh, of a heart. No man ever spoke like this man. Remember when Jesus was in the city of Nazareth where he had been raised and as he was teaching there, when as an adult, the people began to ask themselves, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So the beauty of Jesus' speech. One day I'm going to hear that voice. There's going to be something to hear his voice. Right now, it's, I, right now I've got to work with red. And I'm glad for that because the Holy Spirit gives it the life that it needs to. But someday we're going to get to hear that voice for ourselves. And so he said, Gird up your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and with your majesty. And so uh, speaking of Solomon, but then again supremely of the Messiah, of the fact that he is brave, that he is a conqueror. And so concerning Solomon, you know, in terms of military ability and all of this kind of thing, think about it as you apply it to Jesus in terms of how brave, how courageous um, 
and what a conqueror he was. He didn't conquer another human army, as significant as that might be in, in certain contexts in, in human history. He conquered the grave. He conquered the grave. He conquered death, even as we've sung. He conquered my sin, my condemnation. He conquered hell. He holds the gate, the keys to death and hell on his keychain. You talk about a king that's really conquered something. Jesus has conquered these things. Every enemy that man has, Jesus has conquered them for us. Beautiful picture of of the Messiah and his ability to do that. And Jesus is going to conquer and defeat every one of his enemies in a physical sense, too, at his second coming. talks about the battle of Armageddon at, at his second coming, Revelation chapter 19. I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with which he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel coming in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all of the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this great conquering king that the Messiah is. But he's not just a, a, a great, brave conqueror, but he goes on to say, and, your ma- and in your majesty ride prosperity, be, uh, 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 prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. Jesus comes back at his second coming. He establishes what is known the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And that reign is going to be marked by truth, humility, and righteousness. Unfailing. Imagine having, now you talk, imagine having a world ruler that these are the three great characteristics of his character. Truth, humility, and righteousness. Now that's somebody that could really rule the world. That's a one world uh, government that you could get behind and everybody will one day. It's fascinating during the thousand-year reign of Christ, nothing will change related to this earth. 
One day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth after the thousand years, the Bible teaches. But Jesus is going to come back. He's going to take the same fallenness, the same world where people are starving to death and everybody's all these wars and rumors of wars and all the crime and all the mess and all the junk and all that everything and all that the world isn't isn't because fallen men rule over fallen men. He will take the highest position in the world and the world will be transformed just on the basis of now having a leader that these are the great characteristics of his life. Truth is preeminent. Ruling in humility as a servant and never violating righteousness in any decision that is made. I'll tell you, it's going to be fantastic. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things, and your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, the people's fall under you. And then here that the king clearly, which everybody recognizes, all right, this isn't about just about Solomon, but about the Messiah, because here is the uh, mention of the fact that he, Messiah, will be divine, that he will be God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness, and therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia and out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. And so here is is the king where he is um, excited about the fact, and this verse 8 speaks to us of the fact that the king considers this wedding day a very, very special day. He's got all of his best clothes and he's got his best scents and oils on him and all. And the imagery is of the fact that Jesus is excited about his wedding day when we as the bride of Christ are united with him. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place uh, for you, it's so that I can come back and take you to be where I am and so shall you ever be with the Lord. He is waiting for the word from the Father to go get his bride. And it's interesting to think about it tonight. He is as eager to come and for us to hear that shout and to take us as the bride of Christ into heaven to be with him as we are eager for him to come and receive us as his bride. The beautiful poetic imagery of a tremendous, tremendous truth. We know how eager we are to see him face to face and be united in that way. But it's fabulous to realize that he's as excited uh, as we are to receive us to himself King's daughters are among your honorable women, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. And so he is there pictured now with the bride in verse 9. And then in verse uh, 10 through 17, uh, we're told of the counsel that was given to the bride or to the queen before she's brought before the king uh, in all of her glory. Listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Number one, forget your own people also and your father's house. When you come before the king, forget everything about your former life. Forget about it. Don't even bring it into this 
marriage or bring it in to the relationship. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. We see him face to face. We are going to bring any of our past B.C. days before we became Christians or even what we've done after becoming Christians. We're not going to, when we see him face to face, we're not going to bring that into heaven and into that relationship. That will all be over. Revelation 21, verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so when we see Jesus face to face, we'll never give another thought to our former life. All gone. Wonderful to think about. And then the second a bit of a counsel that is given to her, so the king will greatly desire your beauty. So once again, this recognition that the king is and the groom is uh, anticipating and is going to appreciate the beauty of the bride. So when we're raptured, he's not going to go, ooh, 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 you got in? Ooh, man. Well, I'll take her warts and all, I guess. No, no he's, he's going to be very excited, desire her beauty. Again, he desires our presence with him in that face-to-face relationship because he is your Lord. Worship him. And so she's instructed to respect him. And, of course, heaven is going to be a place where God is respected and the great praise and worship and adoration is lifted up to him not only by angelic beings but also by us as the bride of Christ. And we will love to do it. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. And we're told during the kingdom age, that thousand-year reign of Christ, as Jesus rules in from the city of Jerusalem, rules the world that way, we will be his servants and uh, be apportioned. Uh, we'll rule and reign with him, which is generally believed that um, as Christians will be kind of dispatched to some part of the earth that will be a part of um, making you know sure that his will and his purposes are done in that area. And uh, probably where we rule and reign, that reward is determined a little bit by our faithfulness to his call upon our lives now. So um, if you get Bakersfield, (laughs) you were a bad boy. Uh, If you get Pacific Grove, all right, you're a little better. So... Stay faithful to God's call. There won't be any bad positions there related to that. Just making fun of it a little bit. But when he rules there, the the, uh, people from all over the world, we're told, will come into Jerusalem bringing their wealth and all as just an expression of their gratitude for the fact that he rules over the whole wide world and what a blessing the world has become as a result uh, of that. Because... um, And so, and the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She she shall be brought to the king in robes of many color. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to her with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought. They shall enter into the king's 
palace. And so here the bride is being presented to the king. Everybody's excited as can be. Heaven is just, they're just going to have a hootenanny uh, it, it related to this. A great celebration. And then the king, the Messiah, is addressed again in verses 16 and 17. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons. And so speaking to uh, the Messiah here, the idea is, is that the ministry of the prophets and the kings and the priests in the Old Testament, that one day that's going to give, away, give way to the king's sons. Speaking of the Messiah, uh, the ministry of the prophets and of the kings has given way in, in a very real sense to the ministry of the apostles, the evangelists of the new covenant, and you, whom you shall make princes in all of the earth. And, and uh, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. And so... This is a picture of that day coming. Wonderful to realize as Christians that we are going... This is just like a trying to put in the English language, looking at a human example of the beauty of what is ahead for us. We will be... We will experience everything and more that's described in Psalm 45. Then Psalm 46, uh, one of the great psalms of of the book of Psalms. There are certain psalms that you turn to and everybody has their favorites. This is one of my favorites. And, but there's some psalms you turn to and you can't help but think about uh, the kind of history that the psalm has. In other words, you realize what, how many hearts has the Lord encouraged for 3,000 years of human history. Think about how many ups and downs there have been in human history. Think about wars. Think about black plague. Think about all of these kind of things and how often God's people through the ages have turned to Psalm 46 in order to uh, maintain perspective in the middle of all of that. So we turn to this psalm with a sense of, of its, its history and what it's done in the past and of course, what it does in our own heart as well. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Psalm 46, 47, and 48 were probably written surrounding uh, the same great event in Israel's history. And the great event in Israel's history was when Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, was attacked while Hezekiah, one of the great kings of Judah, was reigning. They were attacked by the Assyrians and the Assyrian king by the name of Sennacherib. And at that time in human history, the Assyrians were the world-ruling empire. They had the greatest military. They were dominating that part of the world. And they were very, very ruthless uh, people at that time. At least their military was, and of course their society uh, supported that military. And so when the Assyrians would go into an area... 
um, if they met any kind of resistance, they would make an example of you. Say they were conquering a country, the first couple of cities would resist them. They had a cure for that. They simply, once they conquered the city, they would decapitate everyone, stack their heads out in the front of the gate of the city, take the skin off of the bodies and cover the walls of the city with human skin as an example to all of the other cities that would dare to resist the military power of Assyria. And so people got the message and they surrendered pretty quickly. And so here comes Assyria. We, by the way, we know that all Assyrians are wonderful people today. So just relax if you're a Syrian background. We don't hold this against you. The Irish, now that's a wonderful group of people. They never did anything wrong. They never did anything, but they never did anything wrong. I'm just kidding, please. So, but that was the way that they operated. And now here they've come, they've attacked Judah. They've come to the very gates of Jerusalem And Jerusalem is resisting them. And so Assyria knows how to make an example. They have surrounded the city of Jerusalem with a great military, uh, at least 185,000 frontline Assyrian troops are camped laying siege to the city and looking to get in there and really do some damage. And they resist this Assyrian army in obedience to the Lord. And then one night... At just the right time in the siege, why would God choose one night as opposed to another night? I don't know. He's knocking out a lot of things all at once. So whatever night's the right night, he does it. He sends out one angel, not an archangel, not Michael, not Gabriel, angel Bob, (laughs) angel Rudy, angel Alex, just a regular angel. And that angel goes out, and in the morning when the children of Israel wake up, on the very morning that Assyria was going to storm the walls and take the city, there's 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers at the doorstep of Jerusalem. And so these psalms are written in celebration of the Lord for His supernatural deliverance of them. And so here they are, you, when they talk, he talks in verse 1, God is our refuge, a very, our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the sea, and so forth. In other words, when life gets at its most uncertain, its most frightening, God is with us and God is present. And that's what the psalmist wants us to know. Imagine, he talks about the seas here and that kind of a thing. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the Gentile nations are referred to as the seas. So, and you can imagine standing up on one of the walls of Jerusalem, looking down on this army of 185,000. They're moving with military precision and all, and it just had to look like a sea that was moving around. And the idea is, and the psalm is written, to give us comfort in the face of when the world is at its worst. When you look at the world and you, and you finally reach a place and you say, there is no solution in man for the problems that we see collectively in this world. And a person would be tempted, if there were not a God, to lose all hope. 
And so it's for when life is at its absolute worst, nationally, internationally, individually, and personally. And so that's who this psalm is written to. And that's why it's a, it's a great encouragement when the bottom falls out in our lives on the basis of one thing or another, that here is the reminder, God is our refuge and he's our strength. And he is our refuge. The idea of him being a refuge is that he's a hiding place. You ever just get to a place in life where everything is just so much, everything, it, nothing is stable anymore, nothing is like what you knew it to be, the whole world is shaking, there isn't a safe place to go to in the whole wide world, and you come to God and you say, God, can I hide in you? I need a safe place to hide. And as I look at the whole wide world, there's not a single safe place to hide anymore. Not physically, not morally, not spiritually, nowhere. God, would you be my refuge in this hour in human history? And then, Lord, would you be my strength in a time in my own personal life or in human history where these are the circumstances And, of course, they discovered God to be that. And there is a river, verse 4, whose streams shall make glad the city of God, a holy place, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, speaking of Jerusalem. And so here's this great army all around. And so the Jerusalem will not be taken Why? because God is in the midst of Jerusalem. God was very pleased with Jerusalem and pleased with the children of Israel and very pleased with, in general, he was pleased with the children of Israel and very pleased with the reign of King Hezekiah. So God is very strong in the city. And so his presence is there. And because that's where he is present, then uh, they are, are not going to be moved, which is a wonderful realization for us because where is the presence of God concentrated in the world today? His Holy Spirit in, in His people. The Bible says that you as a Christian, me as a Christian, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word that's used there refers to the Holy of Holies. The very presence of God, the place that represented the presence of God in the temple. Where the high priest could not go into that holy of holies except one day, a week, a a, a year, and only then after offering a sacrifice for his sin. I mean, this one person in the whole nation got to go in there on one day out of the year. And God says, you and I as Christians have that presence and that anointing upon our lives individually by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is in us, God is with us, we shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And perhaps again a reference to the fact that They woke up that morning and it looked like, okay, tomorrow we're going to get just slaughtered. And then that same very night, just when it looked like God was going to be too late to do anything on it, God helped her just at the break of dawn. God's timing is amazing. 
I'm giving him suggestions all the time about thank God, Lord, it would be a, this would be a great time. <laughs> I've got my associative uh, associate of arts degree at Napa College. God, so that's my qualifications for speaking to you. I have it in general ed, so I'm, I'm, I have quite a, a broad and liberal education. So don't dismiss. And so here I am going to talk to him and tell him about what would be the best way for this to happen, when would be the best time, what the outcome looks like and all. And then always by the time he does, praise the Lord for prayers, he disregards. I'm almost as thankful for the prayers he disregards that come from me as the ones that he listens to and answers with a yes. But always when it it looks and it goes past my deadlines, it goes past what I think is the point of no return, and then I watch and see what he had in mind in his timing, I just say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't listen to my counsel here again. You ever see that bumper uh, license plate holder, always late but worth the wait? I don't believe that. I look at that and and then I drive by and I look and I say, you are not worth the wait. I don't know what you think about yourself, but you are not worth the wait. Well, the Lord is never late and He's always worth the wait. His timing is always just so perfect, again, for doing all the things that He is wanting to do. And so... Just when it seemed like, you know, the, the cause was lost, God shall help her just at the break of dawn. If you sit here tonight and you, th- you think, all right, the deadline's been passed, this is it, my life is just uh, dog food, it's just over for me. T- you, you don't know what the true deadlines are. God is going to help you, but it will be just the right time. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered His voice, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And so this confidence and, 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 and comfort in the presence of God. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still, God says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And so when it talks about the Lord of hosts being with us, it refers to the fact, it speaks of the fact that he has assets that we aren't even aware of. When it's a Lord of hosts is when God is going into taking the Israel maybe into a military campaign and then the Lord introduces his angelic activity into that battle to make sure that the children of Israel win that battle. And the Lord has resources. We don't, we, we're so prone to just look and say, okay, here's the assets, here's the liabilities, ideal and concrete, what I can see, what I can feel, what I can taste, what I can smell, what I can hear, these things, that's what's real. And then we look at our situation and on the basis of the senses we say, I'm doomed. But the God that we serve is the Lord of hosts. He has, he has resources that are way beyond what we understand or that we can even appreciate that He has. You, are ne- you and I are never in a situation 
where we are outgunned or outnumbered or outresourced, it never happens because the Lord is the Lord of hosts and he is in, in our life. Remember Peter on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is getting arrested and he takes out his sword and he begins to flail the sword and he cuts off the right ear of the servant of Malchus, the high priest. And Jesus turns to Peter and tells him to put his sword away, that things are not out of control in the way that Peter thinks it is. Jesus does not need to be defended in that circumstance. He said, how else could the scriptures be fulfilled? I'm supposed... I came into the world to be crucified for your sin. It's messy, it's ugly, it's unfair. I know why you want to pull a sword out, Peter, but I don't need your help. And don't you realize that I could call 12, 000, 12 legions of angels right now to come and help me, 72,000 angels, and put an end to this nonsense of what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is only happening... I am only being arrested because this is a part of a great plan that you're beginning to see unfold. And that's the truth about all of our lives. We are never out-resourced in any circumstance that we face in life. And so he reminds us there in uh, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. And so why can we uh, be still? He says it comes with a knowledge that He is God. He's God. He's in a, that's a category of one. The Assyrians are not God. Your next door neighbor in the apartment complex is not God. The people that Deprave the culture that we live in. They are not God. No enemy we face in life is God. You have God and then you have everything else. You have God and then you have creation. And the gulf between the creator and the creator is, creation is infinite. And so the whole thing that the psalm does is it gets us to pull back and to remember God is present with me. There is only one God, and He is my God. And when I realize that, then I can be still in any given circumstance that I find myself in, even at the end of the world, or even when the world looks like it's collapsing on every front. We can have peace because we have a refuge in God, and, and our hands, our life are in the hands of the Lord. Be still. Why? Because no one else is in charge of this world. God is in charge of this world, and He is going to work human history to His God-appointed end. And so here is the confidence that God is in control. Psalm 47 and this psalm uh, comes out of that same kind of a circumstance, and it is a, a celebration of uh, our God as the King of all the earth. Oh, clap your hands, all ye peoples. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. I haven't even done that any justice, have I? Imagine the excitement that they experienced 
when they wake up and they're kissing their wife or their husband goodbye in the morning, not expecting to see anyone, the kids there, everybody's going to be dead before the day is over, and our heads are going to be heaped up at the gate of the city. And then that morning they go out and they see that God has defended them in that way. And the celebration it would have produced, Oh, clap your hands, all ye peoples, Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. There's a time for quiet, meditative, contemplative praise and worship of the Lord. And then there's a time to stomp your feet and to clap and to jump up and down and again have a Holy Ghost hootenanny. And there's nothing wrong with that. And again, our worship of Him, our expression can be appropriate and proportional to what it is that God has done. When God delivers us in these kind of ways and we recognize, Lord, that was completely Your grace in my life. Well, He's deserving of praise and He's deserving of some real shouting and some real clapping going on directed to Him uh, in, in celebration of what He's done for us. And then He gives the reasons... Uh, for this uh, celebration of, of the Lord as the king over all the earth because of what he has done to this great military power. For the Lord Most High is awesome, and he is the great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the voice of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our God. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Do you believe that tonight in your circumstance? That God is the God of all the earth. We believe in the providence of God. We believe in the almightiness of God. We believe in the sovereignty of God. That God works all things together for good in our lives because we love Him and we follow Him. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose, as the Bible says. And so there's that confidence that we have, that shouting, that excitement. And, and nothing that's happening in the world is to rob us of that. When we're robbed of that, that uh, sense of celebration, it means that we have begun to think of something else as being the final say in human history or in a given situation. But God will be that one. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And when it talks about the shields of the earth, it's talking about the leaders of the earth. Leaders are are appointed. One of the great reasons for government or leadership in, in a nation is that that nation would provide uh, safety for the, its citizens from attack from without, which is war, invasion, and then also from attack from within, which is called crime. And so here are the shields of the earth. They belong to God, all of the rulers of the nation, and, uh, and he is greatly exalted. And so this great psalm of, 
of praise and, and uh, over, the, over God's victory. And, of course, it speaks of, you know, supremely of the day that God is going to rule one day, the Battle of Armageddon. He's going to, you know, they were celebrating that victory. We're going to celebrate the great victory of Armageddon and then God establishing Jesus, his reign for a thousand years. And the whole psalm just reminds us of the fact that when we pray on a daily basis, our Father which art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, and then here it is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That that prayer is going to be answered someday. Every day we pray that, there's that realization that one day God's God's will is going to be done as completely and fully on the earth as it's currently being done in heaven, and it's being perfectly done in heaven. That day is coming to the earth. And so Jesus wouldn't have us praying a prayer that would just be an empty, vain repetition every single day unless he's going to answer that. Why would he have us pray it over and over again, not just make it like an annual prayer? Because every day we need to be reminded of that. And the idea is that when we come to that part of the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that single great thought in our minds would produce a celebration in our heart and in our spirits that is comparable to the celebration that we read about here in uh, chapter uh, Psalm uh, 47. Psalm 48. In this psalm, again, it appears that the context is, is, is the same thing, celebration of the Lord as, as the defender and as the protector of his people. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And so you got a great God. We have a great God. Well, you got a great God. One of the responsibilities of having a great God is to offer him great praise. And he's worthy of that. Never sit silently uh, through a worship service. He is worthy of our praise. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And the city of our God in his holy mountain, speaking of Jerusalem, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So Jerusalem is a city. They're celebrating Jerusalem, its situation, its beauty physically, the physical beauty of Jerusalem. And you go, if you take a trip to Israel or you even read in the scriptures um, when the, the Jewish pilgrims would make their way uh, annually to Jerusalem, they would always talk about going up to Jerusalem. And the reason you'd always talk about going up to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is an elevated city. It sits on uh, the top of Mount Zion. So no matter where you come from all around Israel, you come there and then you begin to ascend to that city. We talk about going down to Southern California because we deal with it like on a north-south kind of thing. And they deal with, spoke about going up because of the elevation of the city. And Jerusalem is a beautiful city. You come uh, there and, and, and as you would uh, come close to it, you'd be coming out of the wilderness, so to speak. And then, then here's this beautiful city right before your eyes. But the psalmist goes on and declares that the greatest mark of beauty of the city of Jerusalem is not its uh, physical beauty, its physical situation, but the great, single greatest characteristic uh, of the city. What makes it the most attractive, verse 3, is that God is in her palaces and he is known as her 
refuge. And so the, the city of Jerusalem was a special place in that covenant and in that day because there was a special presence of, the, uh, of God there in that place. For behold, the kings uh, assembled, they passed by together. And here we have the description of a great uh, deliverance. Again, probably another description of looking at the Assyrian troops. Um, behold, the kings For behold, the kings assembled. So the city is being besieged by the Assyrians. They pass by together. Here's this great disciplined military that they're washing function outside of the wall. They saw it, and so they marveled. And so here's this great military, and then something happens. (laughs) And when they saw what they saw, they marveled. What did they see? 185,000 dead soldiers without a single Jew coming out from behind the walls of the city. Now, that's going to freak you out. That's just going to ruin your day, I'm telling you. This was just supposed to be a plum. We're going to go in there, loot this city, take every valuable that they have. Something disturbed them. They saw it. They marveled. It terrified them. They were troubled. They hastened away, speaking of them retreating and in a panic. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs. And that's when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. And so just like ships being broken up in a hurricane, they were just in a chaotic panic running away from the city. So whatever part of the military survived, if that's what's being described here, survived uh, that 185,000 being killed, they headed off in a retreat. And we know that a Sennacherib did, and there were survivors related to it. And then uh, the whole city witnessed this great miracle of God. And so as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will be established forever. And so the whole city was a witness to a testifier to what God had done in this miraculous way. And he's the God of hosts because he did it with his army and not with our army. Sometimes God tells us, listen, Damien, I don't need your help here. Well, you know, I mean, I, I could just make one phone call. No, please. Don't help me. And he, and he, because he has these resources, again, that we, we just don't know anything about and, and that he can just call and use at any particular time. So he's the Lord of hosts. We have thought, and now this kind of a, a, a thankful reflection on what God had done for them in this victory. Again, you put yourself in the psalm. You wake up that morning and you're dead. You look at your wife, she's dead. Your kids, they're all dead. Your grandkids, they're all dead. They're as good as dead in the physical, natural realm of things. And then God does this miracle and you're all spared. And not only spared, but your great enemy has been defeated in such a decisive way, setting them back in a powerful way from ever trying to do this to you again. I mean, this is the emotion of the psalm. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. 
Let Mount Zion or Jerusalem rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. And then this call to make this great miracle known to the subsequent generations. Walk around Zion. Go all around her. Go around the city of Jerusalem. Count her towers. These were military fortifications. Mark her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. And so the psalmist says to all everybody that witnessed this miracle, go ahead outside, take a walk outside of the wall of the city and take a look at these, this great wall that we built and all of these defensive fortifications and notice they don't have a single scratch on them. In other words, God, we, none of the, we can't attribute this great deliverance to anything we did, it, it, it is completely found in God and make sure that you talk of this great victory to the generation that follows. And that is our responsibility, the great things that God has done in our lives and done in history to let the next generation know it as well. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. So somebody says, hey, wait a second. If he's such a big deliverer, then what happens when we die? Did he stop protecting us? Mm Mm-mm. Because barring the rapture of the church, each one of us will go individually. The rapture is going to happen sometime, but barring it in our lifetime. And we go to be with the Lord individually as he ceased to be our protector, our defender, if we're killed in some act of violence in the mission field or wherever we might be as a part of the military or whatever, did God cease to hold that responsibility related to our lives? No, it just means that our ministry was over. All of us are absolutely untouchable by death until our ministries are over. Believe that about your life. And then when our ministries are over, there is not a, there's no reason to be here for another minute when heaven awaits. All we know is this earth. So we think, oh, no, you know, I only want to go to heaven when I, you know, we think, I don't want to die. I want to have one more ice cream. Like that can compare to the heaven that we, God just shakes his head, you know. They don't want to come to heaven because of an ice cream. Or the sequel to some movie that they want to see. Or how good the 49ers are going to be this year, the Raiders. God knows how wonderful heaven is. And when our ministries are over, it's time to clear out of here. And as I've said before, I don't want to be in this world not five minutes longer than the grace that he supplies me to be here. You want to see a guy have a meltdown before your very eyes? You watch me if I'm here five minutes longer than I'm supposed to be, and now I have to navigate the insanity of this world and the stupidity of my own life without God's grace and His power, but only in my own. No, 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 no. I don't want to be around here one minute longer than His grace. It's time to clear out. I've grown accustomed to His grace. Listen, I won't sing that for you, really. Change the word. We look at people sometimes and you say, 
you know, you might visit somebody at the hospital or some catastrophe has happened or some situation, and you look and you say, I don't know how people do it apart from the Lord. And I know I did before I came to know the Lord. Not very well, but you just muddle through and you just, I mean, it's no good, but you do. But then we walk with the Lord for long years and then decades. And then we become so dependent on His resources because He's taken us out to the deep end of the pool and how He's using us and what He's doing in our lives. But we've become so accustomed to His grace, so needy of His grace, we recognize I couldn't last a minute without it. And so what God does at the moment of our death is He remains our deliverer, He remains our protector, but He just delivers us from the fallenness of this world and the frailty of this world, and He delivers us into the glory of heaven. And that's probably the greatest expression of His mantle as a protector and as a deliverer. So we'll stop there uh, tonight in Psalm 48, and we'll look, uh, Lord willing, to pick up Psalm 49 um, in uh, uh, next week. I'd like us just to remain seated and ask the worship team to come up. And I'd, I want Samuel just to lead us in a, a couple of short uh, songs of worship because I don't want us to look at these